0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm your host, Carl Thomas. So the question is, who was the best boss you ever had? Why? And what did he or she do that resonated so strongly with you? More importantly, how are you applying what you learned? From veteran founders and CEOs to emerging next generation leaders, these men and women talk about their experiences in candid, fun, and insightful conversations. So stay tuned, because the hits just keep on coming. Today's guest, Armin Katan, has been a friend and business associate for 40 years. His body of work in writing, investigative journalism, TV reporting, TV producing, TV script writing, And creating amazingly memorable content is nothing short of extraordinary. And he's fresh off executive producing the HBO documentary series, Tiger. So here's a quick list of what Armin has accomplished over his career. 11-time Emmy Award winner, anchor and executive producer of The Athletic, the digital sports media company. 12 years in various roles as a CBS News correspondent, all of this based in New York City. Long-time contributing correspondent to 60 Minutes, lead correspondent for 60 Minutes Sports on Showtime, chief investigative correspondent for CBS News, nine years a special features reporter for CBS Sports, including the NFL and the NCAA Final Four basketball tourney, along with the Tour de France. A featured correspondent for HBO Sports award winning magazine show Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel. Eight years a network correspondent for ABC News in New York. Add to that, seven years a writer reporter for Sports Illustrated in New York City. And he's written or co written 11 books, including the number one New York Times best selling biography, Tiger Woods, with co author Jeff Benedict. That was published in March of 2018 by Simon & Schuster. And as I mentioned at the top, he just finished as executive producer for the two-part HBO documentary, Tiger, which aired just a few weeks ago. And as Armin will tell us this, a ratings bonanza, both live and on the streaming side. Armin, oh man, what a long list of accomplishments. Welcome to our podcast and thanks for being here. (laughs)
1: Well, thanks, Carl. I feel like I'm 100 years old when you were reading all that stuff. You know, when you when you start, I think I started, I don't know, I started at SI in 1982. And here we are 2021, you know, going on 40 plus years, almost 40 years. Yeah, it's been a, I've, I've been very lucky and grateful. And I've had a lot of terrific breaks in my life. But I, I have to say I made the most of them when they came
0: along. Well, that's for sure. You and I got to know each other before you went to New York here on the West Coast in San Diego. So, that amazing list of accomplishments I ticked off is, you know, from an IMBD perspective, an amazing body of work and career. So, we're on the Best Boss Ever podcast. And I know you've had a number of awesome bosses. Can you distill it down to one or a couple?
1: Well, I could take you on a little bit of a road trip, if you don't mind. I can I can start in 1982 at Sports Illustrated, and Gil Rogan was my first boss, incredibly literate, really was the, I think, the conscience of the magazine in so many ways. But the boss that really had the most influence there for me was Mark Mulvoy, you know, very uh, outgoing, gregarious, big thinker. And then after those seven years, I had the great privilege of working for Rune Arledge at at ABC News. And those that know Rune's reputation, I mean, he's on the Mount Rushmore of, uh, you could say, sports and news television as a producer. And when he, he was there, he was running ABC News. And one of the great moments of my life was I was in an audition phase to become a correspondent for ABC News. There were three other candidates to this day. I don't know who they were. And they were in this kind of star chamber room where they played all the audition tapes. And And uh, as the story goes, Rune looked at all the tapes and said, I want that guy. And that guy was me. And that was a life-changing moment to go from Sports Illustrated to becoming a network television correspondent without ever spending a day in local news. It was just a, it was a gift from the gods. And and, uh, I spent eight years there. And then I had the great good will to work for Sean McManus, both when he was the president of CBS Sports and then president of CBS News, was a big fan of mine. In fact, he was the one who, in 2006, brought me across the street from really the sports side to the news side to become the chief investigative correspondent. Uh, I worked for Ross Greenberg at HBO, who was the president of HBO Sports, and just a, a huge believer in talent. Ross was always one that he overpaid, but he was able to bring in the best of the best to work for him because he let us do our thing. He didn't micromanage. And then finally, Jeff Fager, Many people know the executive producer of 60 Sports and also certainly more prominently 60 Minutes. So in the corporate world, you know, it was Time Inc., Time Warner, Cap Cities, Disney, CBS, but not on the corporate side. It was always on the storytelling side, which was, you know, different. I didn't get caught in those those C-suites battles and things like that. And so before I tell you my best boss, I'm going to just take one more side road here and say the boss I never worked for, who I would have loved to work for, and I've been around a lot, happens to be the head coach at the University of Alabama football program, Nick Saban. I've known Nick now for gone on almost 25 years, dating back to his time at, when he was the head coach of the Miami Dolphins. And I've been down to Tuscaloosa and been around the program a great deal. To me, I think he's almost the perfect boss. The, the messages that he sends about the process and that means not worrying about the scoreboard, not worrying about whatever the achievements are gonna be or the awards. You live it day to day, you pursue perfection, not day by day, but play by play, mm-hmm. moment by moment. And so those slogans have meaning, you know, when, when you talk about a better you or play the play, I've seen that in action when the Alabama football team was down against Georgia in 2012 in the SEC Championship. and and it was the third quarter. It almost was this collective Goliath that, that all came together, and you could literally see them dominate the Georgia defensive line and took the game away from Georgia. And that doesn't happen unless everybody's on the same page. And Nick has been extraordinary. And I think this year's team, he called it the ultimate team, his ultimate team, perhaps his favorite team. All of those things, you know, I think are applicable. They're not just slogans. You know, when you say, do your job, look at the scoreboard, that means don't look at the scoreboard. Don't worry about the stock price. Don't worry about the quarterly report. You know, do your job today as a group, as a team. So long-winded way of getting to my best boss, you know, it was a toss-up between Rune, only because I had such great respect for Rune. When Rune would call you and say, that was a great story, I saw him in an elevator one night. I had just done a big story and he asked me when I got it. And I said, I got it at three o'clock in the afternoon. It ended up leading world news tonight, that night. So we spun it around in three and a half hours. And he looked at me and he goes, that's a great piece of work, Armin. I could have flown home without a plane. That's how high and excited I was to get that kind of compliment from somebody like Moon But Jeff Fager to me is my best boss for a lot of reasons. He, first of all, he's a savant when it comes to storytelling and, and, being in a room with Jeff, uh, when you screen these pieces, a lot of people don't know this, but sixty minutes, you don't work with scripts we We work with scripts, but Jeff never sees a script. He never saw a script. What Jeff would see would be the finished product on a screen, and that would be what we hoped would be close to what would end up being on the air on on a Sunday. And Jeff would look at it, and he had this incredible ability to understand and dissect and move things around or or look at you sometimes and go, I don't know what the hell you're trying to say here, but I'm not getting it, you know? And so he was very blunt. You know, it's not for the faint of heart. 60 Minutes was not for the faint of heart. If you didn't have confidence in your abilities, you were going to get eaten alive there. But he also understood culture and he deeply respected talent. And he created the culture. The culture at 60 Minutes was you're at the top of the mountain, you're at the best of the best, you're the best of the best, and you're among the best of the best. And I'm not going to tell you that every single day. The fact that you're here that tells you what you need to know. Your job is to to meet the bar or exceed the bar that I have set for this show that has been on now for 51 years and the list of people that have come before you are all Hall of Fame correspondents virtually all of them. So he challenged you to be the best that you could be. A lot of people don't like that. You know, Nick Saban talks about Oh, there's people that that are average, that are good, and that are great. Well, the average person really doesn't want to hear from you. The good person doesn't really want to be criticized. The great person wants to hear the truth every single day so they can get better. They can become the best of the best or elite. And that's, you know, Jeff and I, and I wasn't the only one. We all heard it at one time or another at 60. He could be absolutely cold-blooded in his assessment of the stories, but in the end, he forced you or he inspired you to raise your game. And if you couldn't do it, you weren't going to be around very long. And that's the kind of world that I like to live in. You know, that's a high wire, but the rewards are astonishing when you're willing to throw yourself off of that cliff.
0: Well, that's a big cliff to jump off. And there's a huge difference between couldn't and wouldn't. So if you couldn't do it, you wouldn't have been in Jeff's office because you did not have the potential to be great. If you wouldn't do it, then you would probably only be in his office once. Exactly. There were a
1: lot of people, I can tell you, that walked into Jeff Fager's office and said these words to him, I would love to be a 60 Minutes correspondent. 100 people, 1,000 people. I don't even know how many people. But the thing is, Jeff knew what he needed. He knew the the skill set. He knew the talent level. And it was a finite group of people that he felt could, A, reach that level that he was looking for, but, B, withstand that, that almost Shark Tank-like atmosphere at 60 Minutes, that hyper-competitive world that you lived in because- There's a finite amount of pieces they do every year. There's only three pieces, sometimes only two if they're two parts on Sunday night. When I was at ABC News, when I started out, and this was 1989, there were 80 correspondents around the world for eight stories in that broadcast every single night. And if you don't think that was competitive, you have no idea. So it forces you. My first year at ABC News, I did a grand total of eight stories. Because I wasn't ready to be on the air on World News Tonight, but they knew I could write. They knew I could report. They knew I had the skill set. And this is something that I think companies have to, in this day and age, have to understand. When you see talent, you have to nurture that talent. You have to be able to say, we're going to pay now for the dividends that we know that are going to come later. They saw my work ethic. They saw the passion that I had for my job. They saw that I could write. I just wasn't ready as a presenter, so to speak, to stand up in front of a camera, particularly with my voice, to be able to hold people with my voice in the narration of a piece. And it just took practice. And fortunately, I think I did 18 my second year, 32 my third year, 50-something my fourth year, and 80-something my fifth year. So the patience that ABC News showed with me you know, paid great dividends for them in the end.
0: Well, that's a hallmark of great leadership. I mean, finding talent... And nurturing talent is one thing, but understanding and recognizing the attitude on the talent side that has to come with that, the willingness to know that maybe, hey, eight stories this year, that's going to double. And then it's going to double again. And over five years, you went from eight to 80. That's a pretty extraordinary run up. And credit to you, Uh, obviously you're a storyteller and you were able to hone your craft under extraordinary leaders and you've just ticked off several of them. So as a storyteller, having written 11 books, I mean, I'm gonna sort of get us to, in my opinion, the most interesting part of this, which is the 2018 book that you and, and Jeff Benedict wrote, Tiger Woods. That biography became the, if you will, roadmap blueprint for the HBO docu that just came out two weeks ago, and the second part was just this past Sunday. And by the way, this this episode airs on the 26th of January, so it'll be fresh in everyone's mind. But so I'm a huge movie buff, TV buff, read a lot of books, as I know you do. Whenever I see a great film that was preceded by a great book, the simple question I have is, is the book better than the movie? That's a good question. I think the answer is they're just very
1: different. You know, the book is, you know, that, that's a week of your time. You settle in. It's its the printed page. If you want to read a page over, you have the ability to do that. If you can't quite get or grasp what somebody is trying to tell you. It afforded Jeff and I in 400 plus pages to go in Myriad directions in Tiger's life, principally based on our reporting. But it's kind of a one way mirror, you know, in terms of you're sitting there and you're reading. The documentary, to see it in film, it's just a very different experience. You know, it's the power of visual storytelling, it's seeing people struggle in certain moments to express their emotions or the depth of their emotions because. It's, it's so impactful, or the moment has been so impactful in their lives. And it's a, it's a process of decision-making. I mean, Jeff and I had to make decisions when you're doing that kind of a 360 degree view of somebody's life, this immersive biography, it's a 10,000 piece puzzle that you have to decide. First you have to find the pieces, and then you have to piece them together, which is an arduous process. Filmmaking is the same way, but they only had three hours and 15 minutes. Matt Hamachek and Matt Heineman, the two directors, with a cast of hundreds, I would say, around them. But it's a different kind of decision making. Yes, the architecture of Tiger the Doc is very similar to Tiger Woods the book because it's a father-son story. It's the price of genius. It's fame and fortune. It's the rise, the fall, the return. All of that is there. But it's really dependent upon, A, who you can get to sit in a chair and consent to, in many cases, four, five, six-hour interviews, and then making very difficult choices as to what you use from those interviews and how you form the narrative. And I think the two mats, as we call them, did an extraordinary job of not only choosing the voices and the architecture of the story but the depth of the story and the tone of the story and their willingness to to turn the mirror around and look at society and culture in things like media and tabloid news and race. And that's really hard to do. So, you know, the art form, it's always storytelling. That's the thing that I've always gone back to. And I go back to what Don Hewitt used to say when 60 Minutes began, you know, 50 plus years ago, tell me a story. And that's what they did in the doc. And that's what we did in the book. But they're very, very different.
0: So you mentioned the rise, the fall, and the comeback. One of my prior guests, the guy you know, actually, said that the comeback is always better than the initial rise and then the fall. By the way, I watched both parts of the documentary. And kudos to you and the two mats and everyone associated with it. It was was extraordinary. And I will say, there were some uncomfortable moments in it. So the rise to the pinnacle of success, late 90s to early 2000s, the dramatic fall from grace, as evidenced by that one clip where after he is arrested with, what, I think, five prescription drugs in his system just completely out of it, and then the back issue and the fact that, you know, he literally couldn't get out of bed without help, to be able to rise and come back from that is amazing. But, but And that part of this story is not yet told. So you end your book in 2018 and oops, yeah. right? Oops. I got to tell you, when, when Tiger was found on the road in
1: Florida in Memorial Day weekend 2017, thinking he was in California, and as you alluded to with this rock star cocktail of pain-relieving drugs and THC in his system— I thought in my mind, wow, is this how it ends? This is the, this is the final chapter of Tiger Woods' life. Are we going to see the same thing that we saw with so many other child stars who, you know, either die or drift off into, you know, this netherworld of nothing in their life? And, you know, the book was coming out, the hardcover book was coming out the beginning of April, and we didn't have a final chapter. Our editor, Jofie's Credit, He goes, you don't need a lot. We've got the book. We're ready to roll on the printing of it. And I went to San Diego to the Farmers Open, where I had been several times to see Tiger. And I saw him there. And first of all, he was healthy. Second of all, I looked at him like, wow, he's so much more engaged, open with the media. And he's so much more human than I'd ever seen him before. And then he made the cut. He made a, a big putt on Friday to just make it on the cut line. And then he played pretty well over the weekend and we all walked away and I walked away thinking, oh my God, there, there's some hope on the horizon here. And, and then I came back and I wrote, I don't know, the last whatever 500, 600 words of the book. And the book basically ends when the hardcover where I say something along the lines of, Tiger seem poised to show the next generation of fans and tour pros just what a living legend looks like. And that's how the book ends, living legend looks like. And sure enough, September, he wins the tour championship. And then God knows what we witnessed at the end of the dock when he came back in 19. You Talk about storybook, to win the Masters the way he won it in classic Tiger fashion. You can't make something like that up. You just can't. And the power of that story and the power of the father-son moment with Charlie, and then you go back to the same hug, that very similar hug that Earl gave to Tiger when he won the Masters in 97 by 12 strokes it's just bone chilling. So yeah, we were like scrambling. I'm like, I don't know, Jeff. And I would have fun with Jeff because, you know, he's been my, one of my very good friends for a long time, Jeff Benedict, my co-writer. When I was in these, you know, dark moments, I'd call him up and I'd say, you know, because the book opens at Earl's unmarked grave. And I would go to the, you know, know, Jeff, maybe we just want to write when Tiger's gone back to Manhattan, Kansas, and he's standing over his father's unmarked grave. And he's staring at that that you know you can't even see, there's no gravestone, there's just tiny little piece of metal on the on the ground. And Jeff goes, Are you out of your mind? What do you you know don't don't go there. I said, well I don't know where to go right now. You know, and then finally we got to San Diego and we got an ending. But you know, I mean I, I don't think I was doing but I, I do have a sadistic sense of humor at times. And so I
0: can I can attest to that by the way.
1: <laughs> yes you can. Yes you've seen it you've seen it in person in my earlier life.
0: Well, listen, whatever redemption is or what it means, obviously the story is not yet complete. The Tiger Woods legend goes on. I loved your comment in the doc where you said, all right, you guys think you're going to go out here and you're going to play with the living legend? You have no freaking idea what you're in for. Just, you don't. But there was one piece in the story that, Troubled me, and it still troubles me. And that was the relationship that Stevie Williams, the caddy, and Tiger had for the glory years. And the so abrupt termination of that relationship, I can't imagine it was really all driven by Steve's decision, blessed by Tiger to caddy for Adam Scott, do you know? I mean, what's the? Is there a backstory there? Well, yeah,
1: I think the backstory is it's not so much about Stevie, but with Tiger, when you outlived your usefulness to Tiger Woods, you were excommunicated from the Church of Woods. And I could list a half a dozen people or more that either said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing, or outlived their their importance in the in the inner circle of Tiger Woods. Where it was either Earl Woods, and you can start with the story of Dina Gravel, Dina Parr, now Dina Parr and his first true love. And when she was an impediment or an obstacle for the grand plan for Earl and Tita with Tiger turning pro, they summarily cut her out of Tiger's life. And that to me is one of the most powerful parts of part one of the doc. But there's a guy that you don't see in the doc who I know, John Merchant, who recently passed away, uh, was the first African-American to graduate from the University of Virginia Law School became part of Tiger's inner circle when he was an amateur, uh, an attorney, a very well-respected attorney in Connecticut, had enormous influence in the amateur golf world with the USGA. He would have been a a voice of reason in in the House of Woods, but Earl felt threatened by John because Tiger was listening to John. So John went away. Stevie Williams went away. Hank Haney went away. Butch Harmon went away. Um, There are a slew of people that When your time is up, your time is up. And Tiger didn't look back. And I think, Carl, what you were saying, not just what Stevie said, but then what Tiger said when he was asked about it, I mean, it was just so cold blooded. Really? And that to me was like, wow, that's not even, it's like Stevie said, 13 years of our life together and all the moments that they shared. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it's time for me to move on. And that's basically what it was. I don't know whether that Tiger still exists I really don't. I can't even, you know, suggest what he's like now in the terms of that. I mean, Mark O'Meara is another one, you know, who was a big brother to him. And, you know, it was an enormous influence when Tiger moved to Isleworth and Mark teaching him and, and, and showing him what it meant to be a pro on the PGA Tour. And then when Tiger hit that fire hydrant Thanksgiving night in 2009, he turned off his phone and he did not respond to calls from Mark O'Meara, Charles Barkley, Amber Loria, who is a dear friend and niece of the O'Meara's. I mean, I could go on and on.
0: Well, it's a clearly complex character. And again, I'm so looking forward to reading the book. And as we said early on, this story's not yet fully written. So it remains to be seen. But for me, for an observer, knowing you and having watched the doc and soon to read the book, I can only look at what's coming with a completely different perspective, and I thank you for that, because it's an it's an awesome, if you will, mosaic of how complex the character is, on the one hand, how revered he is, on the other hand, when the fall from grace occurred, how literally a big part of the world was cheering that fall. And I I find that that sort of whole human nature thing, whether it's him, whether it's the tick off you just did of all the people who were so important to him and then he determined or his dad determined they were no longer relevant. And it was like they just got literally pushed off the cliff dead and buried. Oh yeah. What I hoped in the end and
1: what I felt when we finished the book which it was a much more empathetic portrait of Tiger Woods. There was empathy involved in understanding what he went through from the moment that he was born literally, or he was in that high chair, you know, watching his father hit golf balls to the, where we are now with Tiger. And I think what the doc did in the book did to a certain degree was humanize Tiger Woods. And you use the word redemption, and then I'll stop talking about Tiger Woods perhaps, but We steered clear of the word redemption, both in the book and in the doc, because we felt like it was moralizing from on high to say, oh, he's now been redeemed. And in the final cut that I saw right before everything got sealed off, they changed that ending to become Pete McDaniel talking about the frailties of a human being, that he's human, just like the rest of us. He's different than the rest of us, but he's human like the rest of us. And I think that feeling at the end of the doc, Tiger hugging, Charlie and his and his mom and and Sam, his daughter, and and the reaction of the crowd. You just felt like, oh my God, this guy's lived three or four lifetimes to get to the age that he was at right there at 44, I think. And at that point, I just hope the last 45 years of his life are a little less, you know, complicated.
0: Well, amen to that, and that's a yeah. great way to end the Tiger Woods story, or at least this conversation about the Tigerwood story. So, folks. Armin's book, Tiger Woods, absolutely go get it. And if you haven't seen the HBO documentary, two parts, look at it, watch it, sort of take it in because that word Armin used, empathy and empathetic, I think is a great way to say it. Yeah. Thank you. Well, listen, we've got a few minutes left and we're going to go to our fun regular features here. So you just ticked off an amazing career. The favorite mistake you ever made, right? The one you maybe learned the most from?
1: I think, yeah, Carl, I thought a lot about this. And I think the biggest mistake I made, and I made it over and over, and it was early in my career, so I repeated it time and time again, and particularly through my SI days. You go back to that word empathy. I was considered to be sort of the pet bulldog of my senior editor at SI who's in charge of investigations. He was, okay, I'm going to let Armin out of his cage. He's going to go and do this reporting. He's going to come back with Doug Looney or some other senior writer and they're going to have the, you know, the goods on whatever the story I was working on. And I think that that lack of empathy and I began to put myself in other people's shoes in ways that I hadn't done before. I opened my eyes to other people's perspective on things. And it's really easy to to start to look things through, particularly as an investigative reporter, because you just get so locked into, you know, trying to, you know, get to the bottom of something that you forget that there are, you know, there's people that are on the side of that road that you're you're driving down. And I go back to the Mike Ditka book that I did that was really, a, I think, ultimately a sympathetic portrait of a great football player and an incredible coach. But Mike, like Tiger, was a very complicated man. And I I spoke to his children and I put some of that stuff in the book. And And in retrospect, I should never have done that. I didn't need it. It was unnecessary in terms of the portrait of Mike. And even if I wanted to go... Establish a portrait of Mike, I didn't have to get into Mike's personal life that way. Now I've always used the the line is, as it happened with Tiger, if your personal life spills into the public eye by reasons of decisions that you've made, then I believe the reporting is fair, and that you've put yourself in the position where you're going to have to deal with the aftermath of that. But I think to dig into people's personal lives, in particularly in some of the ways that I did early in my career was just a huge mistake. And I don't, I don't make that mistake anymore. I'm very alert, I guess would be a word to the nuances of where I'm going in terms of people's personal lives. So that I guess would be my biggest mistake. Can I do my worst boss? Can I do that? Now <laughs> would be the time. Okay. So I'm not going to name them, but you remember we talked about the best boss, you know, and all those things that go along with that. My worst boss and I won't say where it was, but he was the exact opposite of that. He wasn't a guy that could inspire me to walk across the street. He had no leadership qualities. He was a guy who had risen through the corporate culture, primarily because he could keep the trains running on time. He didn't really have any understanding of what it would be like in network television and and all of those things. So you're thrust into a position or not even thrust into it. You, by hook or crook or whatever it is, you rise to that level and you are so ill-suited to be in a world where people wake up every day driven by their passion for storytelling. Look, we're not working in coal mines, you know, I'm not building bridges, but the hours that people put in to bring news to America and around the world is a commitment of almost unimaginable depth. And to have somebody as your boss that doesn't really give a shit about that, you know, in many ways. And then also, this was the other thing he did. I I had my first meeting with him, and it might have been my first and only meeting with him because I didn't want to meet with him again. But I was on a pretty big run at this point in time, an award-winning run. And the first thing this guy did was point out the one story instead of telling me, wow, you've been doing a great job for us. Is there what else can we do to help you and your team be even better? The first thing this individual did was talk to me about a single story that had caused some controversy within the network regarding some choices that we made about characters that we had in the story. And I'll leave it at that. And and I was like, oh, so this is how it's gonna be. So this is the power play that I've got to deal with. You're gonna put me in my place right off the bat. And meanwhile, you're looking at your phone and tapping out texts to people while I'm trying to explain to you what it is that, that we do with our group. And I walked out of that room and I called my agent and I said, I don't want to work for this guy anymore. And he said, he goes, whoa, 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 calm down. What's going on? And I said the same thing I just said to you. And he goes, well, let me come in and we'll try to talk it through. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to this guy anymore. And um, fortunately, I didn't have to work for him for very long. But I mean, it was just it was absolutely disrespectful. You know, that's what I didn't get. I could see if I had done something that deserved it. But to start off in some power play for whatever reason, I thought, okay, you just earned the worst boss award, not knowing I was going to be talking to you, but it's a, it's a runaway winner. I can tell you that.
0: Well, leadership 101, fail, fail, right? Fail, fail, passion 101, fail. There are so many of those stories because you don't go through a career without having both sides of that coin and both sides of that coin is sort of seared into your memory and your heart and your perspective, right? Oh yeah. I mean,
1: that's that was one I just I was looking for the exit ramp right there as soon as I walked out no, of that. Well, toilet. clearly.
0: <laughs> but clearly. All right, your favorite female artist or band, singer-songwriter. This was an easy one for me. So I, you know, you
1: know me, I was in the 70s I got to San Diego in 73. I left in 82. Uh, Southern California, Jackson Brown, J.D. Souther, Glenn Fry, Don Henley, um, the Eagles. Listen to you tick them oh, off. Oh, I love them. And, uh, but Linda Ronstadt, Far and Away, Voice of an Angel. I watched the doc. I fell in love with her all over again. I mean, that she was, I, you know, I always loved a beautiful face. When I saw Linda Ronstadt's face for this first time, I was like, and then I heard her voice and then I saw her with the Stone Ponies. And then I saw her, you know, when she was, she went out when she was uh, on her own and she had Henley and, and Glenn Fry, you know, in, in her backup band, uh, you know, so yeah, Far and Away, Linda Ronstadt.
0: Well, great pick. I love her as well. Cause you and I are of the same sort of genre way back there. Favorite food. Well, I'm Armenian, both sides—grandparents, parents. So I, I often talk about
1: last meal. You know, if I'm headed to the chair, right? <laughs> what's right. the last meal? <laughs> uh, so probably shish kebab, rice pilaf, piaz, which is a bean salad. That's really good. Really good. Maybe two bottles of wine. You know, great wine. And then um, if if I can't get the shish kebab, I'm going to go uh, veal chop, medium Caesar salad, and rice pilaf. So rice pilaf will be in there. If I had one thing to eat, one thing, that would be it. As I, as I go to the, as I go to the chair.
0: Oh, that's hilarious. There you go, folks. Just send Armin a box of rice pilaf and and we're all good.
1: Well, my wife, thank God I've been married to, you know, I've been married to this wonderful woman for 41 years. And when she met my grandmother the first time and my grandmother gave me a look as we were walking out of the, the house and, uh, her house. And she looked at me because I had brought a couple of several other women there and grandma would meet with them in the kitchen and talk to them. And then I'd look at grandma and she would shake her head. And she'd go, nah, I don't think so. And when she saw, met Didi and she went, nodded her head. And then she had some of my wife's rice pilaf, which is, is pretty damn good. So, uh, she's, um, she's a keeper. That's for sure.
0: Well, when this COVID fog lifts and we can get back together again, I'm, I'm coming over, man. I want, I want some of Didi's rice pilaf.
1: <laughs> uh, you'll have a meal that, that, yeah, you might just pass out and that'll be
0: it. <laughs> okay. Last one. And an important one. You are a writer and a storyteller and a master of words and wordsmithing and putting words together. So your favorite single word and why? I thought a lot about this one too. And I think it's passion. My, my career, I
1: really believe I've never worked a day in my life. I was fortunate to grow up loving reading, which turned to a love of writing, which turned to a love of storytelling. And the fact that I couldn't play shortstop for the Tigers, it was still storytelling became, you know, it's everything to me outside of my family. And so passion is, I think passion is the single most important thing when you're hiring people is to find people that want to put in the hours. I, I had some interns when I was at cbs news leading the investigative unit who came in and the first thing they did they started to watch the clock and they'd walk out the door at 5 or five thirty at night and the show doesn't go on the air until 6 30 and i just ticked them off one after another i'd be like yeah nice having you here but you're not going to live in this environment if you can't you know you come in early and you stay late and uh so i've always believed that you know i say this to the younger generation of people sometimes i talk to and i you know, they always worry. First of all, they're like, wow, I'd love your job. And I'd be like, yeah, that's not going to happen because, <laughs> you know, I'm not giving it up, uh, you know, <laughs> at least not now. And number two, I'm like, you know, don't worry about the money. You know, the money will come. Find something that you'd love to do and follow that dream and follow that path. And the rest of it will all take care of itself, I believe. And And I think, you know, we hear the word entitled a lot, and I'm sure you've heard it a lot in the world that you operate in when young people come in and they they just feel entitled to have what what they haven't earned and i think when i see the ones that come in with great passion and don't all they want to do is do they don't they don't care how long they have to stay there and so you know i think if somebody said he brought great passion to his career in his life that would be uh something i could see
0: on my on my uh gravestone well if i count as a somebody I'm going to say that not only has your passion shown through in every single year I've known you, but in your work, your writing, your storytelling, the grit that you bring to every day and your passion came through in this conversation. Armin, I can't thank you enough for spending a few minutes with us. This has been awesome. And I look forward to uh, sharing that meal with you and Didi. You bet. Thank you, Carl, so much. Good to see you again. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Please visit our website at thebestbossever.com, where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Until next week, remember, words matter.